Hello, and welcome to Giants of Gene Therapy. I'm Hans-Peter Kiem, President of the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy. My guest today is another true giant in our field. He's a pioneer of mRNA technology used in more than a billion administered doses of COVID-19 vaccines. Welcome, Dr. Drew Weissman. Dr. Weissman is the Roberts Family Professor in Vaccine Research, Director of Vaccine Research in the Infectious Diseases Division, and Director of the Institute for RNA Innovation at the University of Pennsylvania and the Perlman School of Medicine. He co-developed the nucleoside-modified mRNA technology that made the mRNA-based COVID vaccines possible. These inventions were used in the Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines and have the potential to treat a range of medical conditions, and we will discuss some of them today. He's also promoting global vaccine access by working with governments and universities around the world. He has received numerous awards and honors, including the Alaska DeBakey Clinical Medical Research Award in 2021, and he has been an ASGCT member and annual meeting keynote speaker. Again, thank you very much. Let's get started. Drew, can you tell us a little bit what it was like growing up in Lexington? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I talk to my parents who are still alive, and they remind me of Lexington stories. That they moved there because of the school system, and back then, you know, Lexington is one of our, our founding towns where the the Revolutionary War started. So it has enormous history. It's a town that's made up of many titans of research: Harvard, MIT, all of the big Boston research institutions. The, the professors tend to go to Lexington because of their great school systems. So I was surrounded by people who were interested in science and humanities in advancing knowledge. So it, it was a great place to grow up. What about your, your parents and siblings? What were your parents doing at that time? So my, my parents, my, my father was an optical engineer. Uh, and uh, had a company that I actually worked in when I was in high school to help start the company. My, my mother's a dental hygienist. My, I have a, one younger sister who is a designer. She designs uh, jewelry. She designs, she does home design, uh, home decoration. So was there science sort of in the family? Did you guys talk about science around the dinner table? Not, not really. I mean, my, my father is an engineer and you know, his version of science was very different from the science I was interested in. Um, my, my parents would, would always tell jokes about me that there was nothing safe in the house. The, the <laughs> toasters, the doorknobs, Everything in the house was constantly being taken apart because I was inquisitive. Well, that's a good sign. Yeah, <laughs> good start. <laughs> Maybe tell us a little bit about then your academic journey. Now, how did you pick your your college and and uh, yeah, beyond that? So for, for college, I was interested in a small liberal arts school that had 
good science that had a very strong science department. And I went to Brandeis University because they had both of those. They had an incredibly powerful and strong science departments, biology, chemistry, biochem, physics, but it also had very good liberal arts, humanities, and other topics that I, I always thought was important to, to make you a well-rounded researcher. After that, I went to medical school. I, I, you, during my college years, I spent all of my summers doing basic science research. I actually did a master's degree at Brandeis in the four years I was there. So I knew from the beginning I was interested in basic science. So I went to an MD-PhD program at Boston University. And, and what kind of research were you interested in at that time? So in the beginning, it was uh, oncology and immunology. And I stuck with the immunology part of it uh, and did my PhD in, in immunology subjects. And then after medical school and your, your PhD? So for the fun of it, I did a medical residency, even though I, I knew I had little interest in taking care of patients. <laughs> and after that, I did a fellowship at the NIH uh, in Tony Fauci's lab because he was the, you know, the leading immunologist of the time for HIV and got an incredible training. I was there for seven years. Um, and uh, after that, moved to Penn to start my own lab. So that must have been an amazing time. This was, uh, what year did you start there with Dr. Fauci? So it was from 90 to 97. Seems like it's come full circle, right? I mean, this was HIV and then, of course, now also his involvement in, co in the COVID vaccine. So, and I know you still work on HIV and we'll get back to that again, too. Um, what was the research like at that time uh, in, in HIV? So you, this was, it, it wasn't the, the beginning of the epidemic, but it was really the beginning of basic science research. Bob Gallo had just identified the virus. CD4 had been identified as a principal co-receptor, but th that was really all we knew. We didn't understand how the virus infected cells and what it did after that infection and why it took 10 years for somebody to develop AIDS and, and serious disease. So when I started there, we were investigating these very early elements of the immunopathogenesis of HIV. I became very interested in a new cell type called the dendritic cell that nowadays everybody knows about and everybody uses. But back then, nobody was studying dendritic cells with an HIV. So we, we, you know, I, I introduced that into the lab in my group, studied that for a number of years. And, and that led me to start working with RNA at Penn. So when you think about, about this, I mean, again, of course, I know you've worked in the HIV space uh, probably ever since then. Did you think about HIV cure at that time? Back then, we were really mostly hoping for a vaccine. 
we, we thought about cure as something that would be 20 or 30 years in the distance. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we were actively working on vaccines starting in, in 97 when I moved to Penn. So we'll probably get back to this again, too, about the vaccine, because obviously this is you now what you've been working on for, for now many years and decades. And uh, now moving on to your time at uh, the University of Pennsylvania, this was in, I think you said 97 or when did you move? Yeah, so uh, end of 97, I moved to Penn. Yeah. And then it sounds like you really met um, Dr. Carrico, uh, Katie, there almost right away. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. So uh, people probably don't remember, but back in those days, the only way you could read a journal article was if you photocopied the journal. There was no PDFs that you could download. And Katie and I were both avid readers, and we would fight over the photocopy machine. Uh, and, And we would, of course, patiently wait for each other to finish. But as we did that, we started talking. And Katie was very interested in mRNA, but her her vision was you use RNA to transfect the cell to deliver a protein. And she wanted to use that to treat neurologic diseases like strokes. And I I was an immunologist who gave up on cell lines when I was in Tony's lab because cell lines never tell you what happens in vivo. They're, They're a great way to transfect a protein or an RNA or, you know, to, to do simple tasks, but physiologically, they're really useless. So Katie had RNA, uh, I, I transfected dendritic cells, and, and that began our, our journey of 25 years developing mRNA therapeutics. So were your labs like right next to each other or or at what stage was Katie at that time? So uh, Katie was in the uh, neurosurgery department. She was a senior research investigator. She had been an assistant professor, but didn't get tenure and was demoted. She got lab space from another professor in neurosurgery. So she had her own lab space and her own research interests, and she was in the next building. So we, when we started collaborating, we had no funding. So it was the two of us working side by side for 15 years trying to develop RNA. So maybe tell us a little bit more. I know it was very hard at that time to get funding, to get also you know, funding for, for the RNA or mRNA work you, know, you, you were pursuing. So we, we had no funding. I can say this now because the, the dean that, that allowed me to do this is gone. I got a, a good startup package when I moved to Penn, but I had started writing grants even before I got there. So I got my first R01 in the first couple of months I was there and followed that with another R01 a few months later. So it left me with all of this startup money that I didn't need. And usually they take it back if you don't use it. I, I convinced the dean and the chair of my department to let me keep the money. 
So th that was our source of funding for 10 years of RNA work. We, we finally got a grant in the 2009, 2008. So it, it was over 10 years with no grant funding uh, where we did all of this work. Wow. And this was sort of despite of your, I mean, discovery of the nucleoside modified RNA. Uh, and, and maybe tell us a little bit more about that. I know, of course, you, you also discovered or, or were aware uh, of the inflammatory um, sort of side effects of mRNA before you, you made these uh, important modifications. So the, the, the first experiment that Katie and I did, she, she gave me luciparase encoding mRNA that, that she in vitro transcribed. And I added it to dendritic cells in culture. And I, I went back and looked at the dendritic cells a few hours later to make sure they were happy. And they were incredibly activated. You know, this is 1998, before they identified toll receptors. Mm -hmm. And I, Katie and I thought about this, and we couldn't understand why RNA was activating a cell. Cells are full of RNA. As far as we knew, the RNA we delivered was the same as what's in the cell. So we spent years trying to figure out why RNA was inflammatory. And we were one of the first groups to identify TOL7 and TOL8 binding to single-stranded RNA. Uh, and we identified a bunch of other receptors that were involved. So we, we understood why RNA was inflammatory, what the mechanisms were. But the problem was we wanted to make therapeutics. And you can't make a therapeutic with something that activates every cell in the body. So we, we spent our time trying to figure out how to make an RNA that wasn't inflammatory. And that's where we came across the nucleoside modification. Yeah, so, so why do you think it took so long? I mean, mRNA was discovered in 1961, right? So nobody before has really tried to use it in vivo or, or noticed these, the sort of the toxicity? So I, I think what happened is and of course, none of this is published because it's all negative data. <laughs> I suspect people injected RNA into an animal and the animal died. And they had no clue why. Um, but instead of trying to figure out why, they changed their approach and they took dendritic cells out of animals and people and pulsed them with mRNA and then gave them back. And that went into clinical trials and it is still used a little bit today, uh, but it failed clinical trials. So pharma and biotech companies gave up on RNA. Um, I, I don't know why people didn't tr investigate why it was so inflammatory. Yeah, I, I was looking through and preparing a little bit for this. That was a bit puzzling for me that you know, there was more you know, investigation going into this. So then back to 2005, you made this really gigantic discovery. Um, and so so what was that? I mean, how did that feel? And, and what were the implications of that at that time? So, you know, Katie and I thought that we had made this fantastic new discovery. The, the, the night before the paper was published, again, this is before PDFs, 
I, I said to Katie as we were going home, tomorrow our phone is going to ring off the hook. <laughs> we solved the problem of RNA therapeutics. And I, you know, I, I thought every biotech, every researcher who wanted to use RNA for something would call us to see how. Well, the, the phone didn't ring, and it didn't ring for about five years. Um, <laughs> we were very surprised. We, we, you know, we, we submitted that paper to the top journals, and they kept sending it back and said, yeah, interesting, not, you know, we don't want to publish this. And we, we finally submitted it to Immunity. And I was in a meeting in Germany right after it was published, and I met somebody who said that they reviewed the paper and they had to fight with the editor to get them to publish this paper. That the, the other reviewers said, yeah, who cares? You know, nobody wants to use RNA. Uh, don't bother. Uh, but, but he saw the potential in it and fought the editor and got them to publish it. So, so I assume then funding didn't really improve around that time. <laughs> no, it, it, it took another 10 years before <laughs> the, we really got decent funding. And I think you also founded a company, correct, at that time? Yeah, you know, so th th that's a bit bitter. Um, <laughs> we, we, Katie and I started a company to develop RNA therapeutics, but we couldn't get the IP, the patent from Penn. They wouldn't license it to us under circumstances where a company could survive. Um, so the, the company folded and we, we had to find other people who would purchase the IP. So maybe tell us a little bit how this then developed, uh, you know, your involvement with Moderna and BioNTech, and, and when did that start uh, developing? Yeah, th that was actually very late. So you know, after Katie and I discovered modified RNA, we published a series of papers on different therapeutics that you could do, delivering erythropoietin, monoclonal antibodies, other proteins. I, I had always been interested in vaccines and I kept working on them in the early 2010s. And we published a few papers on using modified RNA in vaccines. It wasn't until 2017 where the really the first publication using nucleoside modified mRNA and LNPs for Zika really broke the field open. And, and that caught Uger's, uh, Uger Sahin of BioNTech's attention. And uh, Moderna published the paper around the same time where they, where they used the exact same platform. So many people at, at that point in time were now interested in using it as a vaccine. So, so really, uh, up until then 2017 sounds like it was still very difficult with funding and everything and even companies yeah you know we, we biotech was the first big company who funded our research you know before that there were a few pharmaceuticals who had some interest takeda funded us for a couple of years and then dropped it and you know nih wasn't very interested as well I, I submitted three R01s 
right after our nature paper came out and none of them were scored. And I, I went back and talked to the program officers and, and they were all you know, incredibly upset because they saw it as the technology of the future. But you know, reviewers said, RNA doesn't work. Why are you bothering with it? Don't send us these silly grants. <laughs> it reminds me almost a little bit of the you know CAR T cells, you know, that weren't really funded initially, and it took a long time until uh, NIH you know provided funding uh, for those studies and those um, you know, protocols as well. Yeah. So the the big breakthrough came when you were able to to use or combine it with the lipid nanoparticles, right, to deliver it. Certainly, for the for a vaccine, they were critical and. And initially, you know, we were surprised by the vaccine results. It didn't make sense from a vaccine point of view because the, the RNA had no adjuvant activity. The LNPs didn't bind any innate immune receptors and weren't thought to have adjuvant activity. So it didn't make sense that a vaccine would induce such high antibody and T cell levels with no adjuvant in it. And, and that's when we started to study the LNPs and found that they're actually a very unusual adjuvant. And that's what made the vaccine work so well. It's the combination of the modified RNA that produces protein for 10 days and the LNP adjuvant activity that induces the T cells that stimulate antibody production. I saw in one of your talks, how long does it actually now take to actually make a new uh, vaccine? Uh, you know, since when you described this before, of course, you can make, you know, you've got the mRNA, you've got the sequence mRNA, then you mix it with your lipid nanoparticles, and then it goes fairly fast. No, it, it, it's incredibly fast. Um, on a GMP level, uh, Uger Sahin, so they have a personalized cancer vaccine phase two study where they sequence people's tumors and then pick antigens to put in a vaccine. It takes them four weeks from the time they get the tumor to produce a GMP lot for the patient. Uh, you, 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 you synthesize the gene, you make the RNA, you put it in an LNP and you're done. That is truly amazing. Uh, so, so what is, are you still involved with Moderna and, and BioNTech now? So I, I, I've never been involved with Moderna. Um, I, I've been involved with BioNTech since right after 2017, when they funded us to make ID vaccines for them. And we, we continue to make vaccines and uh, other things for them. So one question, of course, is you now going, going back and forth again. Of course, you, you had then obviously also probably lots of opportunities in industry. What was your decision to, to actually stay in academia? Yeah, you know, I, I think it comes down to when I started research, the, the, the difference between biotech and academia was biotech companies were starting back then. But the, the options were they hired you for a project. If the project didn't work, they threw you out. Um, if the project worked, then you were stuck doing what they told you to do. These were the days before biotech actually thought about science. 
It was simply they bought a patent from somebody and they try to get it to work. And if it works, great, they're bought by a big pharma. If it doesn't work, they fire everybody. So I, I was never interested in doing research that somebody told me to do. My idea of research was I can do whatever I want. And if I want to change what I'm studying, I can just turn the page and start on something new. And I like that freedom. Going back now three years now, just do you think we would have a COVID vaccine so quickly at that time? I mean, this is when, when we learned about SARS-CoV-2. No, I mean, so the, the, the minute, I think it was January 17th, when the, the Chinese released the sequence, we started working on a COVID vaccine that day. We ordered the, 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 the gene synthesis a couple of hours later. We had a vaccine that was up and working in a couple of weeks that we started to put into animals. So I, I knew for GMP that the longest time would be the phase three clinical trial. Making the vaccine would be incredibly quick. There was plenty of research that had already been done on coronaviruses. So we knew what antigen to use. We knew how to stabilize it. That, you know, the, the RNA vaccine was in the right place at the right time. It was the best technology to rapidly make a vaccine. The, the efficacy, people always ask me about, you know, was I surprised at the efficacy? Right. And being honest, we had worked on probably about 15 or 20 different pathogen vaccines up until that point in time. And every one of them except HIV, we had 100% protection in mouse or rabbit or other models. So the 95% the was good. I, I was expecting 100%, but I wasn't depressed that it was 95 do you remember where you were when you learned about the 95%? <laughs> you know, so actually my, my, my wife still gives me a hard time about this. I, I had already moved on. I, I was working on sickle cell gene therapy uh, at the time and wasn't really paying attention for the, the report of the phase three trials. So I, I was sitting at my computer and my wife comes running in and says, oh, they just reported the Pfizer vaccine had 94.5% efficacy. Uh, so I, you know, I, I was working on something else at the time. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I, I imagine. So what do, you, what do you tell people who do not believe in the vaccine and are afraid of it? So today, uh, Art Kaplan sent me a, an email that the state of Idaho, two Republican lawmakers have submitted a law that makes it illegal to give RNA vaccines. I, I just can't imagine anything crazier than that. And, you know, I, I've been dealing with vaccine hesitancy since the RNA vaccines were first released. Initially, I would talk to everybody and say, this is the science. It's not a brand new thing. It's been studied for 25, 30 years. It's been in people for 10 years. 
and, and would try to explain to them why it was such a good and safe vaccine. Since that time, there are groups of people that I just won't talk to anymore because I find that it's, it, it's useless. The, the, the anti-science people who don't base their, you know, who, who believe reading the internet is research and believe what crazy people are telling them uh, on the internet that vaccines make you magnetic or uh, you know, all sorts of crazy things. And when you don't believe in science, having a scientist tell you you're wrong doesn't do you much good. Yeah, uh, very tough. Now, just a little bit more on, on vaccines. I, I think you've also now been working on pan-coronavirus vaccines and, and you know, universal flu, herpes. What's the progress there? You know, so we, we've got a, a general herpes vaccine in phase one clinical trials. So I think the first five or six patients have already received their first dose. We've got two influenza vaccines and two HIV vaccines in phase one clinical trials right now. We've got a bunch more that are being developed. We've got malaria and TB and dengue and C. diff and uh, uh, many others that, that are close to being into clinical trials in the near future. We've also branched out. We're now making vaccines for food allergies like peanut allergies and aero allergens. We're making vaccines for autoimmune diseases. So the, the, the platform, the, the breadth of potential uses is enormous with RNA technology. Yeah, I, when I saw that, that was really fascinating. You know, so, so where do things stand with like food allergies? So we're in mice right now, and we've been able to reduce IgE and eosinophils uh, and uh, inflammation. Everything works in mice, though, as you know. Yeah. So we're now at the stage of moving up into larger animal models to see how well it really works. But that would be also just, you know, an amazing life-changing uh, discovery and, and uh, advance, you know, for food allergies. So I got to ask you again, I mean, uh, coming back now to the HIV, why is it so difficult to get this HIV vaccine? Yeah, so, you know, the big problem with HIV is, you know, we've tried many times. There have been many clinical trials. The only one that sort of worked was the Thai trial. I don't really think it worked because they, they've done follow-ups in South Africa with the same or improved vaccine platforms that failed. We know a, a p-value of 0.05 means one out of 20 times it's going to work, even though it, should, it, it didn't work. The, the problem with HIV isn't so much the vaccine platform as it is the immunogen. HIV developed to avoid immune responsiveness. It's covered in sugar, it mutates, it hides its epitopes. Uh, all of those things make it incredibly difficult to make a response. In infected people, 
10% of them develop broadly neutralizing antibodies. We're using that as a way to make better immunogens that can induce a broadly neutralizing response. We're getting close. So Moderna with Bill Sheaf and, and Scripps in, in San Diego has a phase one clinical trial where they started to see the generation of broadly neutralizing producing B cells. That's a first time in humans. We're hoping that our, our two clinical trials will show similar. We're now developing, so any HIV vaccine is gonna be multiple different immunogens. You have to start the UCA, the, the unmutated common ancestor of the BNAB. Once that's expanded, then you have to mature it into a broadly neutralizing antibody. That's gonna take multiple different envelope immunogens. So we're now setting up clinical trials to look at the boost to try and get closer to the final vaccine. Our guess is probably six or seven years from now, we'll have a phase three clinical trial with a vaccine that will hopefully make broadly neutralizing responses and be protective. So there's hope, sounds like. For no, the definitely there's hope. Yeah. So I'd like to switch a little bit over now to, you've mentioned that already, you also work, I know you also work, of course, on, on other diseases um, and the use of you know, mRNA and lipid nanoparticles for other diseases like sickle cell disease. Um, where do you think things stand and, and how long will it take to develop you know, uh, uh, in vivo gene therapy approaches for sickle cell disease, for example? So we've made a lot of progress we've been able to target the cells of interest. So we can target the repopulating bone marrow stem cells and gene edit them with 100% efficiency. We did secondary transplants and every bone marrow derived cell is gene edited. That, that's a great start. The next step that we're working on now is fixing the genes. So with, with sickle cell, there's a couple of approaches. You can try and fix the mutation in the beta hemoglobin gene, or you can induce a mutation in the fetal hemoglobin gene that increases fetal hemoglobin production that is a, it, you know, essentially cures the disease. We're doing both of those right now. Um, my guess is that we'll probably be in patients in two to three years uh, with phase one clinical trials. And uh, a few years after that, we'll hopefully have an easily administered gene therapy that we can give to the 300,000 people a year who develop, who are born with sickle cell. Yeah, I, I think sort of an in vivo gene therapy approach will be so so important uh, for yeah for patients with sickle cell disease. Um, I know you've also worked on in vivo delivery for CAR T cells. Do you think that's the future, also in the immuno oncology space? I think it is. If you look at the state of of CAR T therapy. It's only available in highly specialized medical centers, namely in the United States, uh, Europe, 
There's one place in China and a few in Japan, uh, but that's it. So if, if you're in India or Africa or South America and you need CAR T-cell therapy, you have to fly to the US or Europe. And that's because it takes 10 days to make a CAR T-cell in a GMP cell culture facility. What we did is we made CAR T cells in vivo. So a CAR T therapy costs, I think it's around $450,000 a dose. That's great if you're treating you know, a, a leukemia in a single patient, but we're looking at CAR Ts for things like treating HIV, where there are millions of patients, many of them are in Africa or other parts of less developed parts of the world, there an in vivo delivery system has the potential to make CAR Ts in vivo and cure or help cure diseases like HIV. So you know, I think for single patient leukemias and lymphomas, the current approach is fine. I think for treatment of large scale diseases, for autoimmune diseases, for HIV uh, and for others, you need the in vivo. From a technical prospect, the in vivo works as well as lentiviral CAR Ts for fibrosis. We're now expanding that to other diseases. Carl June did phase one trials with ex vivo mRNA, and the efficacy was similar to lentiviral. So in theory, the in vivo will give similar efficacy to lentiviral cars, uh, which will make it much faster and easier. Right, right. Any, any remaining challenges or, or, or limitations of uh, mRNA technology? The, the challenges are too numerous to mention. <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 my, my lab works with about 250 labs around the world on every imaginable RNA therapeutic, vaccines, therapeutics, gene therapies, and the numbers keep increasing. To me, the, the, the biggest detriments right now are people and their hesitancy towards science and RNA in general. And I think, you know, it, it doesn't matter how good your vaccine is if people won't take it. So we're spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to get to people and convince them that what they're reading on the internet about RNA vaccines making you sterile and making you magnetic and all these other crazy things are, are nonsense and that it's a safe vaccine that will save your life. Uh, so I'm spending a lot of time trying to address the people end of this uh, while, while we're developing new therapies. No, I know you, yeah, you've done a lot of work and, and thanks a lot for, for that, you know, working with all the different governments and uh, to really improve access to the vaccines. Let me ask you, do you have a particular mentor that you would say has sort of facilitated your career that 
no, you can't remember. So it, it's not one mentor, it, it's many. Um, you know, starting back uh, when I was uh, an undergrad in college, um, I, I did a master's degree in a biochemist lab with Jerry Fasman, who uh, taught me science. And, and you know, going into his lab, I was clueless about how you did science and how you formulated hypotheses and how you analyze data. And then for my PhD with Anne Marshak, she, she taught me immunology. Um, and then my time in Tony Fauci's lab with Tony taught me science and taught me the world and, and how the world addresses science and looks at science. Uh, at, at Penn in, in my early years, I had lots of mentors who helped me develop new research directions. Um, so, you know, I, I, I can't name one person who's responsible for all of this. It's, it's many people. Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, thank you. So what advice would you give a young researcher today? Well, you know, my, my, my first one is drive an Uber. <laughs> if, if you're really interested in science, uh, you know, you have to look at science as a, you know, uh, figuring out new things. And, and if you're inquisitive, if you're curious, then science is something you should do. Um, the issue with science is what I've noticed of my kids is that the, the, the young people nowadays need rewards for everything and they need an immediate reward and science never does that if you're lucky enough to have an experiment work the first time it's sure not to work the second and third um, and ideas take time to develop so you both have to be curious and able to deal with with negative results if you can do that, then science is a fantastic career and you will never be bored. You will always, you'll, you'll wake up every morning interested in going to work and learning more and figuring out new things and new ways of understanding how things work. So, you know, anybody, you know, if you're curious, then science is definitely something to look at. Yeah, you mentioned your, your children. I think you've got two daughters. And so are they following in your footsteps in science? My, my older daughter uh, <laughs> majored in biology and chemistry. But towards the end of her, her undergraduate career, she decided she had no, you know, she didn't like blood. She didn't like patients and studied health policy. So she now works in Washington, D.C. on health policy, where she works with Congress and pharmaceutical companies to come up with laws and approaches for drugs and, and other therapeutics. My, my younger daughter is an esthetician who, uh, who does skincare and lasers. And uh, so she, she's... She's not interested in basic science, but she's interested in medicine. Yeah. 
So with all this work, this is a lot, uh, Drew. Is, is there time to do anything else? Anything you do for fun? So I, 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 I really haven't had time for fun over the past five years. Um, something I still do is I, I, in the summer, I kayak a lot, uh, which is both fun and, and good exercise. Um, I, I, I travel a lot now and I bring my wife on most of my travels. She'll go if it's interesting. She had no interest in Cleveland or Buffalo, but for, uh, for, for Taiwan and for, <laughs> for Hanoi, th those were very interesting to her. And my, my, my daughters have started coming on a lot of these trips. So it, it gives me family time and travel with family while I'm doing work abroad, uh, which is fine. That is wonderful. Anything else, Drew, you would want to share with the ASGCT community? No, you know, it's we're, we're in the beginning of gene therapy right now. Uh, it's gone up a, a lot of hills and, and a lot of low points over the years. Um, but I, I think the future of medicine is gene therapy. Vaccines are important for large-scale diseases. But the, the future is going to be gene therapy. It's going to be treating the individual or small numbers of people with unusual genetic diseases that greatly impair their lives. And I don't think people realize how much genetics is important in medicine. Just about every neurologic disease is genetically based. Uh, there are thousands of bone marrow diseases that are genetically based. Gene therapy is the future of medicine. Thank you very much, Drew. Thank you so much also for all you do for the uh, people around the world and uh, working towards uh, uh, the vaccines and these cures. Thank you very much for spending time with us. Thank you. <laughs>